Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. That happy little sound, by the way, that little kitten purring was one Mr. Rupert Giles, who is one of the residents of my own private castle, Dracula. I guess, yeah, let's say Carfax Abbey instead. Anyway, uh, (laughs) Rupert is a real sweetheart and he has a very distinct purr and I really wanted to capture that. I'm really glad I did. It took some effort to be quite frank, some uh, chasing him around with a directional microphone, but here we are. I felt like that was a little something special. So, Dracula, anyway. Let's get back to that. Oh, but uh, before we do that, a sip of reading wine. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's only Wednesday, but, you know, it's been a long week already. What week hasn't of late, for that matter? For like the last, oh, I don't know, nine months. But that's okay. I'm going to share something with y'all that is real. This is the first year ever that I have looked forward, in adulthood, that I have looked forward to the holidays without any caveats. Because I don't have to go back to the place where I grew up, and I don't have to see any of those people. I have realized, as a result of the pandemic, that I don't have to see those people ever again if I don't feel like it. That is liberating. So we're going to have a nice, quiet holiday at home, and I'm really looking forward to it. Anyway, let's get back to Dracula. Maybe one more sip of reading wine. Oh yeah, that was a good call. Okay. Dr. Seward's Diary. 10 September. I was conscious of the professor's hand on my head and started to wake all in a second. That is one of the things that we learn in an asylum, at any rate. And how was our patient? Well, when I left her, or rather when she left me, I answered. Come, let us see, he said, and together we went into the room. The blind was down, and I went over to raise it gently, whilst Van Helsing stepped with his soft, cat-like tread over to the bed. I raised the blind, and the morning sunlight flooded the room. I heard the professor's low hiss of inspiration, and knowing its rarity, a deadly fear shot through my heart. As I passed over, he moved back, and his exclamation of horror, Gott in Himmel, needed no enforcement from his agonized face. He raised his hand and pointed to the bed, and his iron face was drawn and ashen white. I felt my knees begin to tremble. 
There, on the bed, seemingly in a swoon, lay poor Lucy, more horribly white and wan-looking than ever. Even the lips were white, and the gums seemed to have shrunken back from the teeth, as we sometimes see in a corpse after a prolonged illness. Van Helsing raised his foot to stamp in anger, but the instinct of his life and all long years of habit stood to him, and he put it down again softly. Quick, he said, bring the brandy. I flew to the dining room and returned with the decanter. He wetted the poor white lips with it. I feel like I've already read this. Huh. Well, I don't know. This is what comes after the end of the last episode. So, I'm going to keep reading it. If this is a repeat, I'm really sorry. Anyway. I flew to the dining room and returned with the decanter. He wetted the poor white lips with it, and together we rubbed palm and wrist and heart. He felt her heart, and after a few moments of agonizing suspense, said, It is not too late. It beats, though, but feebly. All our work is undone. We must begin again. There is no young Arthur here now. I have to call on you yourself this time, friend John. As he spoke, he was dipping into his bag and producing the instruments for transfusion. I'd taken off my coat and rolled up my shirt sleeve. There was no possibility of an opiate just at present, and no need of one. And so, without a moment's delay, we began the operation. After a time, it did not seem a short time either, for the draining away of one's blood, no matter how willingly it be given, is a terrible feeling. Van Helsing held up a warning finger. Do not stir, he said, but I fear that with growing strength she may wake, and that would make danger, oh, so much danger. But I shall precaution take, and I shall give hypodermic injection of morphia. He proceeded then, swiftly and deftly, to carry out his intent. The effect on Lucy was not bad, for the faint seemed to merge subtly into the narcotic sleep. It was with a feeling of personal pride that I could see a faint tinge of color steal back into the pallid cheeks and lips. No man knows, till he experiences it, what it is to feel his own lifeblood drawn away into the veins of the woman he loves. The professor watched me critically. That will do, he said. Already? I remonstrated. You took a great deal more from art. To which he smiled a sad sort of smile as he replied, He is her lover, her fiancé. You have work, much work, to do for her and for others, and the present will suffice. When we stopped the operation, he attended to Lucy, whilst I applied digital pressure to my own incision. I laid down whilst I waited his leisure to attend to me, for I felt faint and a little sick. By and by he bound up my wound and sent me downstairs to get a glass of wine for myself. As I was leaving the room, he came after me and half-whispered, Mind, nothing must be said of this. If our young lover should turn up unexpected as before, no word to him. It would at once frighten him and jealous him, too. There must be none. So, when I came back, he looked at me carefully and then said, You are not much the worse. Go into the room and lie on your sofa and rest a while. Then have much breakfast and come here to me. I followed out his orders, for I knew how right and wise they were. I'd done my part, and now my next duty was to keep up my strength. I felt very weak, and in the weakness lost something of the amazement at what had occurred. I fell asleep on the sofa, however, wondering over and over again how Lucy had made such a retrograde movement, and how she could have been drained of so much blood with no sign anywhere to show for it. 
I think I must have continued my wonder in her dream, in my dreams, for, sleeping and waking, my thoughts always came back to the little punctures in her throat and the ragged, exhausted appearance of their edges, tiny though they were. Lucy slept well into the day, and when she woke, she was fairly well and strong, though not nearly so much as the day before. When Van Helsing had seen her, he went out for a walk, leaving me in charge, with strict injunctions that I was not to leave her for a moment. I could hear his voice in the hall asking the way to the nearest telegraph office. Lucy chatted with me freely and seemed quite unconscious that anything had happened. I tried to keep her amused and interested. When her mother came up to see her, she did not seem to notice any change whatever, but said to me gratefully, We owe you so much, Dr. Seward, for all you have done, but you really must now take care not to overwork yourself. You're looking pale yourself. You want a wife to nurse and look after you a bit. That you do. As she spoke, Lucy turned crimson, though it was only momentarily, for her poor wasted veins could not stand for long such an unwanted drain to the head. The reaction came in excessive pallor as she turned imploring eyes on me. I smiled and nodded and laid my finger on my lips. With a sigh, she sank back amid her pillows. Van Helsing returned in a couple of hours and presently said to me, "'Now you go home and eat much and drink enough. Make yourself strong.' I stay here tonight, and I shall sit up with Little Miss myself. You and I must watch the case, and we must have none other to know. I have grave reasons. No, do not ask them. Think what you will. Do not fear to think even the most not probable. Good night. In the hall, two of the maids came to me and asked if they or either of them might not sit up with Miss Lucy. They implored me to let them, and when I said it was Dr. Van Helsing's wish that either he or I should sit up, they asked me quite piteously to intercede with the, quote, foreign gentleman. I was much touched by their kindness. Perhaps it is because I am weak at present, and perhaps because it was on Lucy's account that their devotion was manifested. For over and over again have I seen similar instances of woman's kindness. I got back here in time for a late dinner, went my rounds, all well, and set this down whilst waiting for sleep. It is coming. 11 September this afternoon I went over to Hillingham, found Van Helsing in excellent spirits, and Lucy much better. Shortly after I had arrived, a big parcel from abroad came for the professor. He opened it with much impressment, assumed, of course, and showed a great bundle of white flowers. These are for you, Miss Lucy, he said. For me? Oh, Dr. Van Helsing. Yes, my dear, but not for you to play with. These are medicines. Here Lucy made a wry face. Nay, but they are not to take in a decoction or in nauseous form, so you need not snub that so charming nose, nor I shall point out to my friend Arthur what woes he may have to endure on seeing so much beauty that he so loves, so much distort. Aha, my pretty miss, that bring the so nice nose all straight again. This is medicinal, but you do not know how. I put him in your window, I make a pretty wreath, and hang him round your neck, so that you sleep well. Oh, yes. They like the lotus flower, make your trouble forgotten. It smells so like the waters of Lethe, and of that fountain of youth that the conquistadors sought for in the Floridas, and find him all too late. Whilst he was speaking, Lucy had been examining the flowers and smelling them. Now she threw them down, saying with half, uh, with half laughter and half disgust, Oh, Professor, I believe you're only putting up a joke on me. Why, these flowers are only common garlic. To my surprise, Van Helsing rose up and said with all his sternness, his iron jaw set and his bushy eyebrows meeting, No trifling with me. I never jest. 
There is grim purpose in all I do, and I warn you that you do not thwart me. Take care for the sake of others, if not for your own. Then seeing poor Lucy scared, as she might well be, he went on more gently. Oh, little miss, my dear, do not fear me. I only do for your good. But there is much virtue to you in these... In the... Good grief. But there is much virtue to you in those so common flowers. See, I place them myself in your room. I make myself the wreath that you are to wear. But hush, no telling to others that make so inquisitive questions. We must obey, and silence is a part of obedience. And obedience is to bring you strong and well into loving arms that wait for you. Now sit still a while. Come with me, friend John, and you shall help me deck the room with my garlic, which is all the way from Harlem where my friend Vanderpool raised herb in his glass houses all the year. I had to telegraph yesterday, or they would not have been here. We went into the room, taking the flowers with us. The professor's actions were certainly odd, and not to be found in any pharmacopoeia that I ever heard of. First, he fastened up the windows and latched them securely. Next, taking a handful of the flowers, he rubbed them all over the sashes, as though to ensure that every whiff of air that might get in would be laden with the garlic smell. Then with the wisp he rubbed all over the jam of the door, above, below, and at each side, and round the fireplace in the same way. It all seemed grotesque to me, and presently I said, Well, Professor, I know you always have a reason for what you do, but this certainly puzzles me. It is well we have no skeptic here, or he would say that you were working some spell to keep out an evil spirit. Perhaps I am, he answered quietly as he began to make the wreath, which Lucy was to wear round her neck. We then waited whilst Lucy made her toilet for the night, and when she was in bed he came and himself fixed the wreath of garlic round her neck. The last words he said to her were, Take care you do not disturb it, and even if the room feel close, do not tonight open the window or the door. I promise, said Lucy, and thank you both a thousand times for all your kindness to me. Oh, what have I done to be blessed with such friends? As we left the house in my fly, which was waiting, Van Helsing said, Tonight I can sleep in peace, and sleep I want. Two nights of travel, much reading in the day between, and much anxiety on the day to follow, and a night to sit up without to wink. Tomorrow, in the morning early, you call for me, and we come together to see our pretty miss. So much more strong for my spell, which I have work. Ho ho! He seemed so confident that I, remembering my own confidence two nights before, and with the baneful result, felt awe and vague terror. It must have been my weakness that made me hesitate to tell it to my friend, but I felt it all the more like unshed tears. And that concludes chapter 10 of Dracula. Next time we'll dive right into chapter 11 and find out how that garlic necklace worked. Oh, I love this book, but so many sad things happen in it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.